Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast with Paul Fagan and Paul Becker. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hey, Paul. How you doing? Hey, Paul. What's going on today? Uh, doing well. Fantastic. Doing good? Good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Lots going on. Uh, contemplating another hobby purchase, uh, uh, something that I was, I've been eyeballing that I want to buy, and, and thankful and grateful that if I buy it, it doesn't impact any of the household expenses. So it's so that's been pretty good. So hopefully, um, in the next couple couple of days, I'll, I'll figure out whether I'm actually going to buy this thing or not. Um, and actually, here in the East Coast, um, it's pretty cold, ridiculously cold. And what I've been seeing um, is a lot of chatter on. You know, I think we talked about this in a previous episode. My one of my favorite social media sites now, Nextdoor. Um, and, and actually it's, it's, it's kind of bleeding into Facebook as well. The whole idea we have a local, as our local utility company for gas and electric is called Con Edison. And, and sure enough, uh, people are really up in arms on how much it increased their bill increased over the last month to month. And I got my bill the other day and it was the highest I've ever seen. (laughs) It really was crazy how high. The bill was, but I think we've talked about this in the past, Paul. A lot of people on these different sites, they're complaining, we should get together, they're calling up the utility. And and I think my sentiment has always been, there's not much you could do, right? This is life, right? These things are going to happen. Inflation, taxes, costs are rising. We are hitting all these inf- inflation pieces. All politics aside, the only way you're going to tackle a problem like that is either, you know, you got to do it yourself. You either got to figure out how you're going to get solar going or you got to get some you know, wool socks on while you're uh, doing your thing. But um, but it was interesting. And, and so at this point, I was looking at the bill and I can't make really heads or tails of it, but it's just way up. I don't know, Paul, if you experienced the same thing. Yeah, I have. And if you're following the news media, it's obviously all about the geopolitical situation throughout the world. It's been going on for quite some time. Uh, natural gas prices have been going up for free for quite some time. And that's what you're seeing. I believe it went up by approximately 50% in the past few months. And hitting at the time of winter, that's really going to hurt your pocketbook. What you can really do, what a lot of people can do is... Uh, through the Con Edison, in your case, or any uh, local utility, you could probably get the last 12 months worth of bills if you really want to look at to see what you can do to compare and, and analyze that. So that's uh, that's what I do. I generally look at them and I track it and I kind of know what's happening all the time. Um, that's one of the things I do there. Uh, I got a funny story for you, Paul, and that is, you know, I'm a big fan of my electric car. I love it. Yes. And, um we're taking a long road trip back down south to visit our son down there. But we're bringing, since he bought a place, we're bringing some of his stuff from home down there. And one of my family members has a much larger vehicle. And so I bar- I'm borrowing that. Oh, my goodness. I went to put gasoline in the car. Holy cow. I just want to top it off just so I can get out of the New York area before I have to put gas in again. I put five something gallons in and it was $19. I'm like, whoa. Now I'm not used yeah, to that because I plug in and it's pretty much the same rate. So absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're giving us a pre- preliminary plug because we are planning on doing a follow up episode to the electric car episode we did, I believe, almost a year ago. So stay tuned for that. Um, 
But thanks, Paul, for that update. I, yeah, I could believe it. Gas, I want, that's one other thing I close my eyes to and I just, it is what it is, right? Whether it's gas, the utilities, taxes, I just have to let it go. So, um, but today's podcast, I'll just jump into this, Paul. Today's podcast is with uh, Jonathan DeYoey. Uh We are going to talk about mindful money, simple practices for reaching your financial goals and increasing your happiness dividend. But first, let's talk about some news we saw this past week. The first news story, Paul, was from CNBC. Um, Social Security may be a treasure trove for you and your family, but first you have to navigate some complex rules. So at a high level, Paul, it gives you the key points where, you know, you may be overlooking the biggest potential source of funds in your retirement planning, which could be your Social Security. Uh, for, for many people, it represents their one, one of their biggest assets. And you really need to know the ins and outs of the different benefits that are available. So I read through the story, Paul. What I took away was I didn't realize all the Social Security options, you know, for like, especially for like divorced widow and, and spousal benefit. Like there was a whole bunch of stuff in there. So I could see their point is to really brush up on your situation and learn a little bit more about it. Um, the other thing I tried to do, and, and this was indicated in the article, is they tell you to wait for the claim. But we talked about this recently, Paul. I don't have longevity in my family, so I don't really plan on living you know, too far into my retirement. So I was looking for a spreadsheet or some sort of online calculator that could kind of give me a target death date. So if I were to take my Social Security at 62 versus taking it at 67 and I die at 72, who wins? Do I do I win if I take it early? Do I win if I take it later, right? So I'd love to be able to play with that. Um, if anyone out there finds a spreadsheet like that, please forward the link to me. But that was something that I took away from it. Paul, what did you take away from this story? Yeah, so uh, a, a couple things. One, I did, know, I did understand and knew about some of the benefits that are out there. Um, I know a, um, not related, but an older family couple where he was still working and she hadn't worked. So they were. He was able to do something a few years ago with some rules where they were. Where I think he was able to start withdrawing. She, then she was able to get her withdrawal based on that as a spouse because they did it that way. And then he paused his, but she was still able to get hers or something. And so there, there are so many nuances to this. And, and Paul, by the way, for your death thing, that's called an actuarial table. There are people that that's their job. They figure that out. And they can, you probably don't want to know it, but it's out there. So um, that is something they can do. And probably our guests can probably speak to that again as well. But there are so many nuances to Social Security, whether it be disability benefits, child disability. It, it's really great to, one, you can call Social Security and get some help on that. Or two, a financial planner, someone someone who can really, who really understands it and can speak about it. And the article will post it on the, on the website there. The gentleman um, on this topic, he did write a book on it. I'm trying to find his name quickly, and I can't say that name. So we'll post it on the website. But uh, really interesting stuff, and it pays to do your homework before you just jump in and claim it, because you might be able to do something different. Very cool. Very cool. And the second story uh, was from the Waco Tribune Herald. Uh, today's mortgage rates move up again, February 14th, 2022. So it's not exactly from today, but it is a recent article. Um, it talks about the average uh, rate on a 30-year is has increased to 4.456%. And it has a bunch of technical pieces in here. The 15-year rate is still at 3.501. Um, and it just kind of walks through the different, the arms, 
the uh, 30-year conventional uh, and some of these different pieces. I guess, Paul, when I took a look at this article, um, they also talk about where mortgage rates are heading. Um, the experts are saying that they're rising, so we'll see what happens there. Um, they talk about the factors that influence rates, um, and they also talk about tips for getting the lowest mortgage rate possible in terms of shopping around and the credit store and credit re uh, credit score and credit report. Um, as always, Paul, my take on this story is um, I kind of don't care since I no longer have or need a mortgage at this time. So, it re but my advice remains the same as I did when I had both types of mortgages. I had a 15-year and a 30-year fixed. Uh, my advice was always go with the fixed, not the variable. And from my vantage point, because I don't want to get into a heated discussion with you, Paul, on this, but from my vantage point and experience uh, of having both the 30-year and 15-year, I prefer the 15-year, and I'll leave it at that. Paul, what was your take on this story? Uh, yeah, the, the rates have obviously gone up. I believe they went up uh, for a 30-year fix, which is the traditional loan. They've gone up about half a point in the last 30 or so days. Now, when, when you look at these rates, what people have been paying really for the last number of years, um, they're historically low. They still really remain in the grand scheme of mortgage loans historically low. Paul, you remember when I, when I fought, bought my first home, um, 1997, 1998 or so, I got a great rate. It was a little over 7%. It was 7.125%. And that was a good rate. Um, we've just been in such a low rate market for so long that anything that's going up, it's like, oh my goodness. Again, historically, the, these are really still really good rates. Will it cost you more? Yes. Historically, we're, we're still in really pretty good shape. And it's a matter of not overextending oneself and making sure you have your contingency and backup funds and everything we talk about frequently. So that, that's my take on it. Um, I try and balance out between payoff, uh, especially at the historic low rates, versus taking those funds and investing them elsewhere. And, yes, that is a, a heated battle between us, and it comes out probably every third or fourth podcast. We have different philosophies on that. So, uh, yep. there you go, Paul. We'll agree to disagree on that one. So with that, uh, we'd like to now welcome to the podcast, Jonathan Dio. Uh, Jonathan is an AIF CPWA expert financial advisor and best-selling author and speaker and angel investor. Jonathan is a Lutheran seminarian turned Buddhist academic turned financial advisor. Uh, he has been an investor for over 40 years and an advisor for almost 30 uh, he has written Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. And Paul, happy to be here. Very cool. Very cool. And one thing I want to add, Jonathan, um, you heard the phone ringing before in my house. That that We call that authenticity, um, <laughs> that we are authentic. It's, it's two dads kind of living dad lives, trying to... Uh, keep everything going. So uh, we leave those types of things in, uh, how, even though they are sometimes annoying. Uh, life happens while we're recording. So <laughs> I just want to know why to you have a landline, why, why you can't get rid of that. Yeah, come on, man. Yeah, that's another, that's another podcast episode. He's just uh, but, wasting money on but, that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, so Jonathan, um, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Uh, well, your intro was perfect. You know, uh, I think the most interesting thing about my journey is that I started off in religious studies and I ended up in finance. Uh, you know, I've got a 20 25 year meditation practice uh, that I've, 
you know, only recently sort of lost a little bit of touch with because my, my brother died last year. Uh, and so that's, that's made it hard to sit still, uh, very still for very long. Um, uh, but you know, I'm still active, still working, still doing all the stuff I've always done. Uh, it's just that one piece that's missing, but having that mix of, you know, what's important to us, the religious studies background and sort of steeped in financial services and lots of experience investing and just working with families on money. Um, I'm actually really excited for this conversation because uh, I'm also a financial dad. Uh, I'm trying to try to teach a 14 year old and a 17 year old about how to grow up in this world. And should they have the 30 year or the 15 year mortgage? I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting for you to teach them that. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I have a 17 year old in the house. I have 11 year old. Paul, you, your kids are 21 and 22, 19, 22. Okay. 22. So Paul's a little bit ahead of us, Jonathan. Um, and I'm a little bit behind in some ways. i um, sorry to hear about your brother. I'm very close with mine. I yes. can't imagine what that is like. So, um, uh, just, uh, my, my condolences on that. I know it's probably still relatively always there kind of in the background. Cause it's hard with a brother, right? I, I, I cried earlier today. I mean, it's just a thing, man. Yep. Understood. Understood. And the meditation is interesting. Um, I try to do uh, some level of meditation. I've been interested in, in transcendental, haven't done much with it, but I have my own general practice. It actually took me back. And this is kind of my next question. I am familiar with some of the general mindfulness practices at some of the companies I've worked. They've actually given like half day sessions on mindfulness and mindfulness training and walking through the practices. But can you tell us how this practice of mindfulness applies to money? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really good question. It's a question I get more often than most any other questions. Uh, you know, Jonathan, it's kind of squishy. How does it, you know, how does it provide a, a better outcome? Um, the problem with money, it's just like if you're walking down the street and a whole bunch of people that look kind of raggy, you know, come at you, you, you have this sense of fear. Um, if you, if you, um, you know, are in a subway, it's dark, it's late at night and you, you're not entirely safe and you, and there's an experience that comes at you that looks like it could be dangerous. If you respond out of fear and concern and, and you aren't thoughtful, you can actually create more problems. Now think about that every single day you're bombarded with, and, and now is a really good example, inflation, 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 inflation. You open the show talking about, about inflation and how painful it is and, and the power bill. And, and if you overreact to those things, if you gut check, you know, react from, the, from, from your gut level reaction, you can hurt yourself, especially if it's talking about investments or you know, deciding to, maybe I'm gonna, you know, gonna rip out this whole thing that's too expensive and put in a new thing um, that maybe it'll be cheaper going forward because you're, you're, you're projecting instead of being slow and aware and making good thoughtful decisions. So mindfulness gives you a doorway, doorway to being rational at the precise moment that you need the doorway to rationality. Wow, that's um, that's kind of a lot. I, I kind of want to go a little off uh, topic and sort of ask you: Do you find that that mindfulness, that meditation, lets you? How do I'm trying to think of the right wording here? Let you just be at peace while you then think through things, or are you just completely blocking out finances and then coming back clean, or are you taking a financial problem in this case, right? That's what we're about here and, and trying to solve it without outside directions and interactions, distractions or anything and think it through. Uh, so let's, let's, let's talk about, I'm sorry. Um, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Let, let's talk about the, the, the culture that we're in 
is mm-hmm. very market driven. When you think about finance, it's very market driven, whether it's uh, the, the, the market where you purchase things or the market you're investing in, right? It's very market driven. Um, nobody can predict or control what prices are going to do. No one can predict or control what investments are going to do. No one can predict future relative performance of this fund versus that fund. Yet almost all of the information we receive, we take in is about making better uh, timing and selection decisions around the investments you have on the purchases you make. So what I'm going to say is what mindfulness does with, with, if you take a different outset, a, a different, a different trajectory from the beginning, meaning you start with your goals and your plan, then what mindfulness lets you do is it lets you focus on, oh yeah, what were my goals and plan again, rather than get sucked into whatever this thing in the moment is, whatever the fear, maybe it's inflation, maybe it was Obama being elected, maybe it was Trump being elected, maybe it was Biden being elected, you know, whatever side of the aisle you fall on, the other side winning, you know, sends to, uh, tends to send you into um, fits of rage or, or dis- uh, despair, right? Um, and if you reacted when one party or the other got, got elected, you lost both times these last couple times, right? So it's better to not react. So how do you create non-reactivity? You create a space between the stimulus of the outside world that lets you think about things, weigh things, make good decisions, and then respond. So that space is actually something that mindfulness creates. Um, Having that space between stimulus and response is exactly what Buddhists and psychologists, uh, Buddhists 2000 years ago and psychologists today um, say that mindfulness gives us. They give it gives us a space before we react to things. And, and Jonathan, it, it reminds me of and and that was, I love what you were saying in terms of that. What came to mind while you were speaking, and I know this has been, I've read this. I think I may even hang in, have it hanging in my office somewhere. Let go of the things we can't control, right? And then focus on the things that we can control, right? And and if you if you let go of the things we can't control, you could eliminate a level of that anxiety and some of these pieces. Um, and then, you know, if you could focus on the things you can't control, you can have those little wins along the way. Um, what, so I think that's, and I love the way you were putting it, it kind of ties it all together. Do you actually apply kind of the meditative approach to mindfulness money? So if you come across, I'm going to just, an example would be you have a, a catastrophic, you know, uh, car accident or roof leak or whatever, right? D- is it is it a time to kind of step back, not overreact, and kind of use some of these meditative practices to kind of guide you through that situation? Or am I off base with that? And that's okay if I'm off base. So if if you're speaking of you know um, the catastrophic car wreck as as a metaphor for something in your financial life, then sure. But if you come across a catastrophic car wreck, I hope you're helping to pull the people out of the wreckage and make sure everyone's you know stop the bleeding. That's that's kind of an acute yeah. issue, right? But if it, That's if, true. Yes. Yeah. I probably used the wrong, the wrong example. Let's say like leaky roof or everyone's safe, but the hurricane came through, took the roof off. Now uh, you got to figure out, you know, again, I mean, that's, that's something that you can, that's let's, let's say it's before the hurricane comes through and it's, oh my God, a hurricane is coming through. What will we do? Is it, is it better to run around crazy and be worried and anxious and not really know, or is it better to have a plan and go, oh yeah, we're supposed to take these, these five things, the documents, the, the, the hard drive and save those, put those in the wrapper, stick those in the crawl space. Uh, we're supposed to get in the car, drive to wherever we're supposed to go where it's safe um, uh, and, and know what the plan is. So you can reflect on the plan rather than what run around with a, like a chicken with his head cut off, right? If you don't, if you don't know what you're gonna do, 
if you don't have a plan, you don't know what you're supposed to do when things fall apart. And the reality is, and this is, this is the lesson I learned last year is things you don't expect to have happen, happen all the time. Uh, and they don't happen to all of us. I didn't, you know, and, and my, my brother's wife didn't expect that he was going to be gone. He was 45 years old. He should be here. He's not here. That's, you don't plan for that. You, there, there is nothing in place for that. Right. Yeah. Um, but for the hurricane coming through, if you live in Florida, you should have a plan to manage hurricanes, right? If we live in Berkeley, California, we have earthquake bins that have food and clothes that help us survive for and water, you know, big bins of water for five days without any, without any support. That's planning. Wow. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, just thinking about some of this and, you know, the emotional intelligence of it and of, of finance, right? You, you sort of touched on it, right? And, and that's sort of one of our things. Uh, Paul's been saying it since he started the podcast here that personal finance is personal and, and yep. how you deal with that and your emotional intelligence um, helps you. So I, I think I'm fortunate sometimes I can truly separate the numbers from the emotion on a lot of things. Um, I'm not sure all my family members can. Let's just let's just say that, you know. But with the right, um, what I like to call plan, again, and, and really just working out the numbers and showcasing how if we do this, this happens dollar-wise. And no, you can't predict anything. You can't predict really anything. Um, it's a best guess. But having that plan is great. So would you have... Do you recommend in, in your book, like there are certain things you should have plans for versus just the overall mindfulness of when something happens? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, and, and, and Paul, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't doubt that a, a, a couple guys who host a, uh, a financial dad's podcast um, would be able to separate those out. And you've sort of done the math, you know, what I have to save to make sure my kids go to school, you know, what you got to save. So you get to retirement. So you've, you've done the math and you have a plan, whether it's a, a formal, you know, deep, comprehensive financial plan that's got a lifetime of cash flows or not, you have some kind of a plan, right? So you can reflect on that and, and sort of gives you, that gives you ease when questions come up, when the world throws something at you. Um, so in the book, the book is separated into three different sections. The first section of the book, you know, I've been investing for 40 years. Uh, uh, so I've, I've been involved with, my first investment was a, a company called First Bank System. It was a bank in the early late 70s, early 80s, which was the period of time when the first the first go around when banks all failed, uh, savings and loans failed. So I, I, I was involved in the first one of those before 2008. I uh, got involved in that one too. I was involved in dot-com. I was involved in you know, uh, the 1987 crash. I've, I've been investing for a long, long time. So I've seen it happen. I've seen a ton of stuff happen, right? Throughout all those periods, and this is the first section of the book, throughout all those periods, there's always noise. Something happens. The world responds, media, you know, goes crazy. Um, and most of those people are talking their book. They already own an investment. They want that investment to go a direction. So they're trying to boost that investment or they've just literally published a book and they want people to buy their book and look at them as an expert, right? So they, they are on media and they're talking about stuff. None of them know your scenario, know the situation you're in, know the decision you have to make, know that, know the trade-offs that, that are in front of you, right? Um, so most of the noise and we use, we use, um, we put eight different categories of what we call illusions are in that first section of the book. And, and these eight different categories sort of say, these are eight things that you can't know the answer to, 
A lot of people will claim to have an answer to it. You can ignore that. That's noise. So that's the first section of the book. The middle section of the book uh, is about what those true pillars of well-being are. What is it that makes a happy life? Things like your health, relationships, uh, a gratitude practice. Uh, these are the things that lead to a life when you look back on, you're like, oh, that was a good life, right? I, I feel really good about that. That's well-being. That's where happiness comes from. That's the happiness dividend, by the way. So you got you got it. the first section of the book, a bunch of stuff you don't need to worry about, a bunch of stuff you should worry about. And the third section of the book is how you build a plan. You know, how you determine how much you need to save, how you pay off debt if that's where you are, uh, how you think about retirement income, how you think about how inflation factors into that, how you think about investing. It's just step by step. It's nine steps and you get from step one to step nine. If you go through it, there's exercises at the end of every chapter. And at the end, you have a plan. And then you have the thing that is your anchor point, like your breath is in meditation. Oh, something happens in the world. Let's look at my plan. What am I supposed to do? Oh, my plan says I do this. That's what I do. It's very cool. Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot that you said wrapped up in there, and I love the way you kind of took us through your book. So thank you for that. The one thing that I, I wanted to ask, uh, one of the things in the book says, what, what do you mean when you say make it a plan appropriate, then stop? So, so can you dig into that a little bit more um, yep. in terms of what is meant by that by that statement? Yep, yep. So if you are, uh, so what is, first of all, what, let's define some terms. Uh, plan appropriate, it's plan appropriate asset allocation. What is a plan appropriate asset allocation? That's the whole phrase. Uh, and, okay. and plan appropriate means the plan comes first. You're not, you're not investing first. You know, what, to what end? What, what is your, what is your amount and time bookends for this plan? What do you need this money for? If you need this money next week, then maybe Bitcoin's not a good decision in investing, right? If you need this money next month, then maybe small cap equities are not a good thing. If you need it three years from now, maybe bonds aren't the right place to be, right? So it's plan appropriate means you're gonna build your asset allocation, you're gonna build your, your investing plan on the top of a very good understanding of the trade-offs of when and how much and for how long you need money. So that's, that's plan appropriate asset allocation. And once you have a plan appropriate asset allocation, you shouldn't change your portfolio much. That's what I mean by then stop. Um, it's the, it's the day to day. What's the market doing? Oh, I'm going to react to that in my investing that hurts people. If you have, and you guys, I'm sure you guys know what asset allocation is, right? How much in equities, how much in bonds, how much in cash? Very simple. If you have that taken care of and rebalanced to that, you're going to be in good shape. So, uh, so many more questions. Um, let, let me start with the next one here. Um, what does the research say about the effects of money on happiness? You know, it, it, there's always like a country song out there for this, I'm sure, right? Uh, I think one of the, you know, I want to buy me a boat or something like that. I wish I had a rich un uncle. Uh, can't buy happiness. I sure wouldn't mind trying. So, you know, what does your research say about the link between money and happiness? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, it's not, it's not my research. There's a, there's a lot of academics out there that study um, the effect of money on happiness. One of the academics that study them, her name is Sonia Liubomirsky. Um, I think she's Santa Barbara, maybe, maybe San Diego, um, uh, UC. She, she does, uh, she breaks down all the sources of well-being and happiness. And she says that 
something like 10% of your overall happiness comes from your level of income. Um, way less than most people would peg that at. Uh, um, and that's, that's one study. Um, there's another, another couple studies that sort of corroborate each other. One of them was done maybe 10, um, maybe 15 years ago now. And what they determined was that your happiness actually improves right alongside your income, right up to about 65 or $70,000 a year of income. And then your income can go up, 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 and your happiness won't go up much more. Um, and I think that the more recent version of that was like three years ago. And it was like the, the new number was 75. So if you think about that, your brain or, or culturally, it's, that's an inflation adjustment. It was 60, 15 years ago. Now it's 75. That's kind of an inflation adjustment, um, which means once we reach a certain threshold of financial, um, uh, you know, having savings and financial income, beyond that, it's not about the money. It's not the money that makes you happy. More money does not make you happier. Once you have enough, then the person you are, you know, I'm more attracted to relationships. I like experiences. You know, I like reading library books. I like, and the more you, the more you do those things you enjoy will give you happiness. So it's not about more, it's about enough. And our, our culture is often in media and social media is even worse at this, right? It's all about more and bigger and faster and in money, doesn't necessarily add to a better life. Yeah, I think I've seen that anecdotally with with others, right? You, you see it on social media. I see it personally. Um, I, I I get that. It, it is an interesting concept of of you know people who you might perceive as having more money may have more problems, right? More money, more problems. I guess that's another song. I think that's a rap it song is. actually, but, <laughs> but um, it, it is interesting how that works in terms of, of, of the happiness. Um, I think, I think personally um, I'm getting to that point in my life where um, I think it's beginning to balance. I, if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I'm not sure. Right. Uh, now that I'm 50 plus uh, at this point, um, I think with age, it, it ties in. I, Jonathan, is is that part of your reading and, and what you've read as well? Is is does age play into this at all in terms of effect on money and happiness? There's, there's or no, not really. Well, no, I'm sure it does, but I think I think there's a natural. So there, there's two pieces to it, though, right? Uh, there's a there's mm -hmm. a natural tendency for us to make more money as we age. So if if you start out making, and I just read this this morning, there are ten. Uh, 10 highest paying, you know, uh, degrees coming out of college on average, all pay 70,000 plus. Um, they're all engineering and comp sci degrees, right? Um, the, the 10 lowest paying are all liberal arts and, and, and music and philosophy, which is what my degree was in. Uh, so, so those are the lowest paying ones. Um, but if you start off in the middle somewhere, it's about $54,000. If you graduate college, you start off with $54,000 a year in income. Um, you get a raise, you switch a job that, that leads to higher income. You maybe have a side gig as you get to 45 and 50, that gets up to the high double high, high five digits, maybe low six digits. Maybe, maybe you get this, maybe you get even more, maybe you get to higher six digits that, I mean, that happens. That's rarer, obviously. Um, but that happens as we age automatically. So it would make sense that when you look at the survey data, it would make sense that older people, um, they have a higher income than that $70,000, you know, max for the benefit of income in terms of happiness. Um, uh, I also think there's another, there's other research though, that talks about how, and it sounds like Paul Fagan, you at least have just gone through this. I, I am going through this right now. I don't know how old Paul Becker you are, but 
there's this dip in happiness, uh, sort of our mid to late forties, uh, affects guys more than, more than women, um, where, where we we thought we knew it all. We were really doing well. And then we sort of have this dip of happiness that comes back around the f- mid fifties. Um, so I think just looking at you two, I'm guessing all three of us are going through that dip and maybe we're coming out the other side of the dip. I don't know. I can't, I can't speak for you guys, but for me, I think, I think it fits perfectly. So there's a lot of things that affect happiness, you know, time of life, you know, where the kids are and they're growing up, how much money we have. Um, but it turns out that money is not the thing we think it is. Uh, it's almost always, you know, our, our attention to our health and our relationships that are the biggest drivers of our uh, happiness. Yeah. So, so Paul and I are just a couple of weeks apart in age, believe it or not. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it is, it is pretty funny. And uh, I could probably go on and on about that dip itself. Um, and maybe we will, but so next sort of question here, you know, talking about how successful investing is mostly about the emotional intelligence. And so what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, I think, I think you touched on this earlier. It's, um, uh, successful investing comes from non-action. It comes from not reacting to the market. Um, no matter what system you decide to follow. And I know people that are traders that are very successful traders. I'm not, I'm not going to come on here and bash trading. Um, I know people that are, that are individual stock investors that are very successful individual stock investors. Um, what I don't know is somebody that doesn't have a plan. I know anyone that's successful that doesn't have a plan that they follow like a religion. Um, for me, the way I teach it and the way I talk about it is I talk about asset allocation. I talk about the simplest, you know, most easy to implement, easy to follow thing out there. And that's, that's asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing. Um, and I have a plan and a process that I employ for myself, for my family, for my parents, for my clients. And I use that process and I employ that process and I don't do anything else. It's very simple. It's the easiest process I know of. It's also one of the more successful ones academically studied. Um, and the benefit there, or the thing about the reason the emotional intelligence is so important is when my investments are not working, that is not a function of the process being broken. It's a function of right now, markets are different, right? Right now, markets are different. And whatever, whatever way you invest, whatever path you have, whatever process you employ, there will be a point that that process is tested by a different market. The question will become, do you throw your process out and find a new process the minute it fails, or do you stick with it? And if you throw it out the minute it fails and replace it with a new one, you know, that's you're adopting in a moment of emotional distress because your, your old process doesn't work and you're, you're finding something new to work. Um, if you do that, then what's going to happen when that one doesn't work? Are you going to throw it out too? Well, if you repeat that multiple times, your, your investment doesn't, your investments don't work. The process doesn't work. Your investments go down, you sell, you try something else. It works for a little while. The minute it doesn't work, you sell. Investments go down, you sell. So you're selling low all the time. You end up hurting mm-hmm. yourself. So the, the emotional intelligence is the ability to sit still, sit in your hands, do nothing, follow the process at the moment it doesn't feel good. Um, emotional intelligence is dealing with the reality, non-judgmentally, hey, the market is going to do this today. You know, sometimes the sun sets, suns go up and sometimes the sun goes down. That's Sometimes the tide comes in, sometimes the tide goes out. Sometimes markets go up, sometimes markets go down. That's just normal, normal market action. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if anyone's ever quoted this to you, but 
every year on average for the last 40 years, markets have, let's just use one, S&P 500 has gone down 14%. On average, every year, peak to trough one time, every year. Mm. So if you, if you, oh, if that's normal, then a 14% decline shouldn't make you react in any way. That's normal. That's, you should expect that. That's, that's part of, that's table stakes. That's part of the game. But let's think about that. What is a 14% decline of the S&P 500? I didn't, I didn't look today at what the S&P 500 closed at, but let's say it's 3,800, right? That means it's a, what is that? A 600 point decline. That's normal. But in January, it went down 250 points and people lost their minds. Like people were crazy, right? So you got, you got to, you got to get out of that cycle of reactivity. And that's where emotional intelligence comes in. Very cool. And I think this ties to, I saw on your, on your LinkedIn page, um, I, I was looking a little bit at you and your firm and you mentioned fiduciaries. So mm. it sounds like the way you spoke, you give to your customers, your clients, the same advice you would give to yourself, to family, to your parents, you follow the same methodology. You saw you, you follow the same plan, same process. That fiduciary is an interesting term. I've heard it on several, uh, documentaries and, and all these different things. And I know a, a little bit about it. They're supposed to be in your corner if you have someone that's a fiduciary, but a lot of financial advisors are not fiduciaries. Can you tell us a little bit about how the fiduciary definition and how it works from your vantage point? I'm curious to, to hear more about that because not many firms are saying that they're fiduciaries. They, they just say they're financial advisors. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So I, I think more and more, there, there are a lot of firms out there that are fiduciaries, um, but, but let's talk about the, uh, there are two degrees or two sort of known definitions of uh, a financial advisor's relationship with a client. Um, the first definition is the broker definition. And that, that, that standard is called a suitability standard. And suitability means I have to know my client and I have to offer my client products and services that are suitable for them. So let's, let's put that in context. Um, so probably the number one, the, the, the leading investment out there, probably for the last 20 years, is just an index of the S&P 500. Um, the reality, though, is the S&P 500 index, you can't invest directly into the S&P 500 index. You have to invest in a product, the goal of which is to mirror the uh, ups and downs, zigs and zags of the S&P 500 index. So the question is, which product will an advisor offer a client? There are some S&P 500 uh, mutual funds that charge a 2% annual fee internally. There are some S&P 500 index funds that charge you 0.01%. If, if I am subject to a suitability standard, an S&P 500, an S&P 500 fund is suitable for most clients as their you know, large US core equity holding. That would be a suitable holding. Um, so which one do I offer? Well, if I'm a broker and I get a bigger commission for the one that charges you 2% fee to the client, that's the one I'm going to sell. Cause that's one that's going to pay me, right? That's it's suitable. It meets the standard. Um, a fiduciary can't do that. A fiduciary has to say, okay, here, it's the same product. It's designed to do the same thing. Here's one that's charges 2%. Here's one that charges 0.01%. I have to offer that 0.01% to my client. Now here's something interesting. If, um, over the years, and we saw this uh, uh, happen in, in a very large way over the last three years, 
what do you do when the actual product prices are coming down, 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 down as an advisor, as a fiduciary, you know, I have, I've got clients that have had the same fund uh, and it charges a 0.2% fee internal to that fund. And there's another fund out there that, that claims to do roughly the same thing, but charges 0.1%. Do I have to then sell this one and buy this one? Um, turns out probably not because there's tax consequences. There's other planning things, et cetera, et cetera. There's also, it's reasonable from a, from a business management standpoint that it would be more complex for me to offer a different, a different product to every single one of my clients as those fees go down. So there's, there is some wiggle room, you know, 0.1 is not that much different from 0.2, but 2% is way different from 0.01. So when mm. you're dealing with a fiduciary, the fiduciary's job is to treat your money better than their money. It's their job is to put you first. Right, not to put you second, not to get your get their payday from you, um, but but to put you at the at the at the forefront of the advice. You are you are uh, the client. Um, you don't come to the game with as much knowledge, probably, um, and so it's my responsibility to be a fiduciary for you, to take care of you, to put you first. Um, and that's, you know, for me, it's like a, it's like a call from God. I'm supposed to do that. It's I. I don't think there's another way to do it. Um, even when I was subject to the suitability standard, one of the reasons I quit a couple of the jobs I had was because my manager was telling me, oh, no, no, you should sell some 5% mutual, 5% low mutual funds. That's what you should do. And I was like, all right, I can't work here anymore. Um, so fiduciary is, is a legal standard. There's a lot of great people that are held to suitability standards that have the belief that the fiduciary is the thing is the right thing to be. Um, and it's, it's bigger than the legal standard. So I, if I had a choice and I was a client, I'd look for people that, that believe in that in a way that, that supersedes legal standard. You know, absolutely. Legal standard should be a minimum. I, we all have to do that. That makes sense. But you got to find somebody that's like all in on being a fiduciary. So, so very cool. That, it, you know, with the standard of being a fiduciary, is it audited or what, what's the, the guidepost for a consumer like me to know, well, he says it's fiduciary. How do I really know? To, well, get them, get them on tape. <laughs> if he, <laughs> if he's a fiduciary, he's a fiduciary. If they're claiming fiduciary, they're fiduciary. Um, that's, that's one thing that I think the SEC has said. Um, the easy way is if you're dealing with somebody who uses a broker dealer, they're, they could be a fiduciary in one hand, but they could also be a broker in the other hand. Um, so if you have somebody who is like, represents a bank or a Wall Street firm, they at least have the possibility of being a broker. And then you have to, as the client, understand, okay, when are they being a broker? When are they being a fiduciary? Um, and I would argue that if you've got to make the decision, then they're not a fiduciary, right? If you have to figure it out, then th that's not really a fiduciary. Uh, but, but they are allowed to call themselves fiduciaries when they wear the fiduciary hat and then take off the fiduciary hat and put on the brokerage hat and, and, and meet a suitability standard. So the easiest way, is a CFP, CPWA, um, uh, somebody that has an RIA, Registered Investment Advisor. Um, those people are fiduciaries. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, one more, and then I'll let you go again, Paul. I'm on a roll here. Um, cool. No problem. <laughs> go PD. 
<laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about Paul. Wouldn't change his name, by the way. I, when we started doing this, like I said, you should really change your name. No, never mind. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm Paul. actually a little bit older than you, not by much, but a little. We're bit confusing older than the guests. You know, right? <laughs> so, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience. You know, being a financial dad yourself, and how you go about teaching your kids, because your kids are are at that age where where money starts to matters, and I'm a little bit. I won't say I'm past that because I think I'm always helping and working with the kids. But, you know, we're, we're past those teenage years and everything here. One's finishing college. One's out there working already. So how, how do you – what kind of advice do you have for our listeners that, that have kids at, at really any age? So before when they're eight, they want stuff, right? And so when they're eight, you have to – I think you have to start talking to them about trade-offs. You know, um, one of the things that we used to do is we'd go into a store and one of the kids would want something and we would say, you know what, you know, maybe, but let's, you know, let's go, let's go home and we'll think about it and we'll come back in a week. And, you know, if you still want it then, 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 okay. So we just make them understand that sometimes those desires that you have right away aren't, you know, if you don't fulfill them right away, then they just go away. Right. That's actually a mindfulness practice. Um, and then when they're 10 or 11 and 12, uh, I mean, I think allowances that they get to manage and spend however they want are important because again, they can't, they can't spend it on candy and shoes uh, you know, they have to make a choice. And that choice is actually the thing we want to teach them is that it doesn't, um, there's a value to money. And if you use it once, you can't use it again. Uh, and then for, for us, and this is really, really important for me, this is, and this is kind of how I learn is I was working when I was 12. Like I, I, I had a job, uh, I had a summer job when I was 12. Uh, my son had a summer job, uh, had a job when he was actually 10, 11. He started working, uh, cleaning the local pool, you know, sweeping and taking out the garbage and stuff. Uh, he did that when he was really young. My daughter has now done the same thing. My son has had a job now for four years. He started when he was 13 at a local deli. Um, he's now training other people at the deli at 17. He's one of the only kids in his class that has a job and has a um, it has a, I mean, he has a, I mean, he has a serious income. I, it blew me away last year when I did it, you know, when we did his taxes and we funded his Roth IRA at 17, he fully funded his Roth IRA, which is, that's pretty freaking amazing. Um, uh, it's awesome. Um, and that's, that's hours working at a deli during a pandemic. So people tip very well. Um, mm. um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that the value of money is learned by having some money to spend. Uh, and if, if, if you can, Figure out those trade-offs, figure out the limitations, figure out you can't have it all. I think those are the key lessons right there. Very cool. Very cool. And Jonathan, we want to be cognizant of your time. We we probably have a million more questions, <laughs> but at this point, we, we want to be cognizant of your time. So thank you for being with us today. Usually at this point in the podcast, we go into a bit of a summary recap. Um, I'll go first, then Paul, and then we'll give you the last word, Jonathan. Um, for me, it was all about the plan-appropriate asset allocation, then stop. I, I like that kind of sticking to the plan. I, I like that idea where, you know, I, I think I've, I think I've done this to a degree, the way my assets are and stuff like that. But when you said it out loud, it reinforced and magnified it for me. So that, that was one of my, that was my key takeaway from this conversation. I believe there was other things, but that kind of stood out to me. Paul, what was your takeaways from today? Uh, for me, it's it's all about the emotional intelligence um, and understanding that where you are and the things you can and can't impact, but still having your plan. Um, you made a plan for a reason, 
And as, as you were saying, Jonathan, so what is that plan? And yes, I, I do maybe differ a little bit in that I always evaluate it and reevaluate it and maybe tweak it. So maybe I don't throw it out, which is what you're saying, right? You're not going to throw it out. I don't do that, but I do constantly tweak it. But the emotional intelligence aspect of it uh, is really important for me, but you can't completely get rid of that. And, and there are instances where dollar-wise, it makes sense. Like right now, Paul knows us. Dollar-wise, it makes sense for me to sell my house right now in this market, buy something smaller until I'm ready to retire. Kids are out, I'm good. But from the emotional point of it, with the family and the kids still coming back here, that's where it gets sticky. And we all have that that point. We all have that, that meter, if you will, what works, what doesn't. But doing your best with your emotional intelligence and only controlling what you truly can control and minimize the noise is really uh, soundful and mindful advice, in my opinion. Very cool. And, and so, Jonathan, uh, we'll let you have the last word. Any any plugs? Any last minute last minute advice? Anything you want to provide to our listeners in terms of information? Yeah, two two things. First is, hey, if you want if you want more information, go check us out at mindful money, um, and and you can connect with me on social media and all that. The last thing I'd say is, um, as a summary, uh, there's these three three little phrases, right? We say, stop predicting, start planning, and stay mindful. Very cool. Very cool. Well, well, Paul and Jonathan, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone, for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul and Paul reminding you, managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the financial dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you.